Let's pray together. Father, we believe that the Bible, all of the Bible, is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. And so we pray now that you would speak through your word. Father, forgive us for the times that we have taken the preaching of your word lightly, underestimating the power of your word. We pray that you would accomplish great things, even in this hour, uh, convicting your people of where we fall short, growing us in the fruit of the Spirit, and even granting uh, to those who do not yet know you the gifts of repentance and faith. Uh, Father, we ask all these things in the name of your Son, Jesus. Amen. Please take out your copy of the scriptures and turn to 2 Samuel chapter 6. Two Sundays ago, you'll remember that we covered the story of Uzzah and the ark from the first half of chapter 6. King David and all Israel with him, uh, they are transporting the ark of the covenant, uh, the golden box that uh, symbolized God's presence with his people back then. Uh, They are transporting it from uh, the city of Kiriath-Jerim, where it had lain in obscurity and was ignored for uh, decades upon decades during the reign of King Saul. And David's desire was to bring it to the new capital of Jerusalem, the new capital of the nation, so that the ark would be restored to prominence, uh, so that the Israelites would go back to national worship with the ark playing a central role. So David leads this kind of grand procession, right? like, a, like a big like Fifth Avenue parade. Uh, all these instruments, all, all the celebrating, all the singing, all this dancing. And their intentions were good. Their intention was to restore worship, to honor God, to uh, celebrate the Lord. But as we saw last time, uh, good intentions are never as important as simple obedience to God's clearly stated word. David and the Israelites were trying to transport the ark in a way that was blatantly and plainly and clearly against God's word. Because God's word says that the ark should have been covered. God's word says that the ark can only be carried by the Levites on their shoulders by the poles. And God's word says that the ark must not be touched. Yet in this grand procession, the ark is not covered The ark is put on a cart, pulled by oxen. And worst of all, when the cows stumble and the ark slips a bit, Uzzah reaches out and with his hand touches the ark. And for that transgression, God strikes Uzzah dead. Now, some people uh, may be embarrassed that God would do such a a seemingly impulsive and harsh thing, Uh, some people have kind of tried to come up with rationalizations for uh, what happened here, natural causes for Uzzah's death. And so they said, well, Uzzah, he just felt so bad about uh, what he just did in touching the ark uh, that he suffered a heart attack on the spot and he died. Really? Or some of these are really ridiculous. Uh, Uzzah tried to stop the ark from falling, uh, but the whole cart overturned and pinned him to the ground, and he died. 
It's amazing what some people will come up with. Uh, But verse 7 is as clear as day. The anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah, and God struck him down because of his error. God was the one who killed Uzzah, and the reason that God killed Uzzah was because he was angry with him. Last time we spoke about why. It's because God is a holy, holy, holy God. And as a thrice holy God, he has every right to strike down wicked sinners like Uzzah who take his holiness lightly, which Uzzah did in this narrative by touching the ark. And so yes, the story of God killing Uzzah is a stunning and shocking display of the holiness and the justice of God. But remember, the story is also a powerful picture of God's mercy Yes, Uzzah was struck dead, but everyone else involved in the procession was spared. All of them deserved to die in that moment because the soul that sinned shall surely die. And they all sinned against God by participating in this procession that clearly went against his word. Surely as Israelites, they would have all known them. They all deserved to die. David, as the one who's in charge of all this, David definitely deserved to die. But God shows himself to be a merciful God, and he spares all of them. And so David's just had this powerful encounter with a thrice holy God in which he was shown mercy and spared. And so he is rightly terrified. Look at verse 9. This is where we left off last time. David was afraid of the Lord that day. And he said, how can the ark of the Lord come to me? Nothing sobers your thinking. Nothing causes you to just slow down and re-examine everything like a near-death experience. Maybe some of you have experienced something like that, where a close brush with death causes you to really think soberly about life and death and God and eternity Well, the holy, holy, holy God has just sent a very clear and loud warning that he will not tolerate his people disobeying his word. He will not tolerate irreverence. He will not tolerate disregard for his holiness. And David is definitely, at this point, he's definitely paying attention. That brings us to our verses for today. We're going to look at verses 10 through 22. Uh, 10 through 22 in uh, 2 Samuel chapter 6. I think it'll be helpful for us to uh, think about this chapter in terms of uh, four sections or or four themes. Uh, And so we have uh, point number one, uh, the reassessment. Uh, Point number two, the repentance. Point number two, point number three, uh, the rejoicing. And then point number four, the resentment. The reassessment, the repentance, Uh, the rejoicing, and the resentment. So let's start with point number one, the reassessment. Look at verse 10. David was not willing to take the ark of the Lord into the city of David, but David took it aside to the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite. Now, how would you like to be this guy? So (laughs) Uzzah was just struck dead for touching the ark, and so we have to cancel the procession. You mind if we just kind of keep this thing in your house for a little bit? 
This, this is a brave guy. There's some debate as to who exactly he was. Uh, at the end of verse 10, we're told that he's a Gittite, uh, which might mean that he is from the Philistine city of Gath, you know, the same Gath that a certain Goliath came from. And so Obed-Edom might be a Philistine, or he might be called a Gittite because he's from a similarly named Israelite city, uh, like Gathrimmon, for example. Uh, there's an Obed-Edom in First Chronicles who's also a Levite, and so maybe that's the same guy. This, I think, seems more likely uh, that David would entrust the Ark to a Levite and not a Philistine, uh, but we can't be sure because it doesn't say. But whoever this guy is, David brings the Ark into his house, probably because it was close to where Uzzah was struck dead and, and the procession stopped. Like I said earlier, like David is not messing around anymore. Like he does not want to make any more potentially false moves. He's absolutely terrified. And so to just kind of buy himself some time to kind of reassess the situation, he puts the ark in Obed-Edom's house. Point number one, the reassessment. But it's during this reassessment that something perhaps unexpected happens. Up to this point in the books of Samuel, right, First and Second Samuel, basically every single interaction that people have with the Ark of God is an absolute disaster. It's nothing but judgment. Eli and the Israelites, they bring the Ark into battle with them. First Samuel chapter 4. What happens? Well, they get routed by the Philistines. And then the Philistines take the Ark. First Samuel chapter 5. What happens to them? Uh, they get tumors and plagues. The people of Beth Shemesh, when the ark comes back, they look upon the ark and 70 of them are struck dead. In the beginning of 2 Samuel chapter 6, Uzzah, he touches the ark and he too is struck dead. Right? It's judgment, 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 judgment. Right? And so just as we're about to conclude that the ark equals judgment, that God is just a punishing God, that he's all about just bringing wrath down on people, well, look at what happens. Perhaps completely unexpected. Verse 11. The ark of the Lord remained in the house of Obed-Edom the Gittite three months. The Lord blessed Obed-Edom and all his household. And was told King David, the Lord has blessed the household of Obed-Edom and all that belongs to him because of the ark of God. Look up to this point. Everyone who interacts with the ark is hit with judgment and wrath. But he will not always chide. Here Obed-Edom is showered with blessing. Now, what the blessing was, we're not told. Uh, but obviously, it's something visible and notable enough that the people would not only recognize it, but also go and tell David about it. Maybe it was uh, abundant crops or uh, productive livestock or, or many uh, children being given to his household or, or, or curing of uh, long-time illnesses and diseases. Right? We don't know. But whatever it is, the point is this. God blesses Obed-Edom. And everyone who sees it acknowledges where that blessing is from. The Lord has blessed the household of Obed-Edom and all that belongs to him. And so the same ark of God 
that to this point in the books of Samuel has been nothing but disaster and judgment has now become an undeniable source of blessing. You may remember this is going all the way back now to 1 Samuel chapter 6. Uh, the people of Beth Shemesh, uh, they ask a really profound question after their encounter with the ark. After they receive judgment in the form of 70 of them being struck dead before the ark, they ask, who is able to stand before the Lord, this holy God? Who is able to stand before the Lord, this holy God? And the implied answer, of course, is nobody. No one can stand before the Lord. Man, stained with sin, filled with evil in his thoughts, in his actions, in his deeds, man cannot stand before a holy God. And so here's our question. How in the world is this random guy, Obed-Edom, how is this guy able to keep the ark in his house for three straight months and not die? And not only not die, but instead receive tremendous blessing upon blessing. Like you think Obed-Edom just didn't sin for three months? You think Obed-Edom didn't lose his temper? Speak unlovingly to his wife? Have proud thoughts? Well, this ark is in my house. Lust in his heart, get, get sinfully angry with his kids for three straight months? You're out your mind. Now, how could Obed-Edom possibly live with the ark in his house for three months? How could Obed-Edom possibly receive blessing instead of judgment? The answer has nothing to do with Obed-Edom. I mean, look at the text. The text is noticeably silent about Obed-Edom. It doesn't tell anything about what he did what he said, what he thought to uh, merit this blessing. Look again at verse 12. The Lord has blessed the household of Obed-Edom and all that belongs to him because of, and maybe we're expecting the text to say something uh, good that he did, uh, his faithfulness, uh, his righteousness, his reverence. We're expecting it to say something about Obed-Edom that merited this blessing. But no, the Lord has blessed the household of Obed-Edom because of the ark of God. It has nothing to do with Obed-Edom. It has everything to do with God. Uh, friends, what a marvelous picture that is of God's lavish grace. Remember what grace is. Grace is undeserved, unmerited favor. That is what Obed-Edom is receiving here in these blessings. Undeserved, unmerited favor. It's not because of his faithfulness. It's not because of his righteousness. It's simply God displaying to Obed-Edom and to everybody who would see, including David, that he is exactly who he said he was. A God merciful and gracious slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Just when we think we've got the ark figured out, just when we, we think we've got God figured out, like stay away from that ark, it's only bad news. We see that God is always more multifaceted than we try to box him into being. Yes, God is very clearly shown, right? In all these encounters with the ark, he is a holy 
and just God. But he also very clearly demonstrates for us here there was abundant blessings on undeserving Obed-Edom, that he is a merciful and gracious God. Point number one, the reassessment. Brings us now to point number two, the repentance. Pick it up in the middle of verse 12. So David went and brought up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David. So everything that happens with Obed-Edom during that reassessment uh, leads David to try again in in terms of moving the ark to Jerusalem. The first time was a total disaster because David and the Israelites ignored God's word on the matter. And so they're going to try again. David's not so foolish to think that he can just do the same exact thing again without consequences. Now this is where the, the parallel account to this chapter First uh, Chronicles chapter 15 is really helpful for us in terms of filling in certain details. And so uh, keep like a finger in 2 Samuel 6 and turn over a little bit to First Chronicles 15. Look at what it says in verse 2. Then David said that no one but the Levites may carry the ark of God. For the Lord had chosen them to carry the ark of the Lord and to minister to him forever. Now skip down to verse 13. Uh, David's talking to the Levites here. Because you did not carry it the first time, the Lord our God broke out against us. Because we did not seek him according to the rule. So the priests and the Levites consecrated themselves to bring up the ark of the Lord, the God of Israel, And the Levites carried the ark of God on their shoulders with the poles as Moses had commanded according to the word of the Lord. You see that? No more carts. No more cows. The Levites are going to use the poles. The Levites are going to carry the ark of God on their shoulders. That, friends, is a great example of true repentance. When I say repentance, I'm referring to after you sin, uh, turning from that sin and turning to God. We have all the the key ingredients here of true repentance. First, we have conviction of sin. Uh, David knows, right? He's witnessed Uzzah's death. He knows that he really messed up, that he sinned in terms of his leadership, of the Israelites in bringing the ark into Jerusalem. Second, that then drives David to the word. We don't know exactly what David did in those three months when the ark was at Obed-Edom's house, but we can be sure that he went back to God's word. 1 Chronicles 15, 13. David says, we didn't do it right the first time according to the rule, referring to the word of God. And then verse 15, now we're going to do it as Moses had commanded according to the word of the Lord. Right? David's going back to the word of God, back to Numbers chapter 4. And now he sees how his actions fell short of what God's word prescribes and how he must now change them going forward. Brothers and sisters, our sin, 
when we see our sin, when we recognize our sin, when we're convicted of our sin, that must then drive us straight to the word of God. Like if conviction of sin just drives us to mope or to feel bad or maybe throw ourselves a a pity party, well, that's not true repentance. 2 Corinthians chapter 7 would call that a worldly grief that produces death. A true repentance requires that we go to the word. We've got to understand why what we've done is wrong, right? The source of our conviction. And then and only then can we apply biblical correction. So we've got conviction of sin. That drives David to the word. Well, third, we have the all-important step of obedience, Because what good is it to be convicted of sin and even know what the word of God says if you don't obey it? Like if David said, well, ah, I see, Numbers chapter 4, we didn't do it right the first time, but you know what, we're just going to try it again with the cart thing. Or even, yeah, I see that's what the law of Moses says, but I have a better idea uh, that's better for our situation. Well, that would not be repentance at all. No, true repentance requires all three of these ingredients, right? We recognize our sin. We recognize what the word of God then says that we must do. And then humbly, in faith, we submit ourselves to it and we obey. That's exactly what we see in King David here. An example of true repentance. Point number two, the repentance. Let's just pause here for a moment and think about what has happened in our narrative up to this point. David sins greatly. He's the king. He's ultimately in charge of this procession. And so he's responsible for the sinful way in which it was carried out. But he has shown mercy. Uzzah receives justice for his sin. David receives mercy. But David does not presume on God's mercy thinking that, well, I can just do whatever I want because God will always be merciful to me. No, God's mercy brings David to true repentance. David is convicted of his sin. He goes to God's word. He humbles himself before God's word and submits to it in obedience. And as a result, as we're about to see, he experiences true joy in the Lord. Well, friends, perhaps uh, you are here today and you find yourself in a similar place to David. Uh, You know that you've sinned against the holy God. You know that you're guilty. But clearly God has shown you mercy to this point. The Bible says that the wages of sin is death. The Bible says that the soul that sins shall surely die And so it would have been completely just for God to have already struck you dead for the sins that you've committed against him, just like he did with Uzzah. But God has been gracious and God has been merciful to you, kind to you, in sparing you from immediate judgment. And so the question is, what are you going to do about it now? Romans 2.4, do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. God's kindness was meant to lead David to repentance, and repent he did. What about you? 
Will you repent? Will you turn to the word like David did and find in God's word the wonderful news of the gospel? The wonderful news that Jesus died for sinners like you and me. And then on the cross, he took upon himself all of the sins of his elect and paid the punishment. He suffers the wrath of God for our sins. And in exchange, he gives us his perfect righteous record. Uh, so that for those of us who have been saved, right, when we die, when we're judged for fitness for heaven, God does not see all of the sins that we've committed, which would surely merit eternal conscious punishment in hell. But instead, God sees the perfect record of his beloved son, Jesus Christ, imputed to us uh, that we might be made righteous and fit for heaven. Will you repent and believe the gospel? Right? Today is the day of salvation. Today you can be saved if you would put your trust in Christ. God has mercifully and graciously allowed you to live up to this day that you might hear this outward call of the gospel. That those of you then who are his people might receive his sovereign inward call and turn to him today and be saved. Will you repent? Or will you continue to presume on God's grace and his mercy? Will you continue to harden your heart and persist in your rebellion against God? Well, if you do, the warning of the scriptures is that there will come a day when God's mercy towards you will cease when his forbearance towards you will end, and you will be judged for your sin. Repent today, turn to Christ, and be saved. Point number two, the repentance. Which brings us now to point number three, the rejoicing. Picking it up in the middle of uh, verse 12 again. So David went and brought up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with rejoicing. When those who bore the ark of the Lord had gone six steps, he sacrificed an ox and a fattened animal. And David danced before the Lord with all his might. And David was wearing a linen ephod. So David and all the house of Israel brought up the ark of the Lord with shouting and with the sound of the horn. Continuing in verse 17. You skipped a verse. Get back to it. Verse 17. Uh, they brought in the ark of the Lord and set it in its place inside the tent that David had pitched for it. And David offered burnt offerings and peace offerings before the Lord. And when David had finished offering the burnt offerings and the peace offerings, he blessed the people in the name of the Lord of hosts and distributed among all the people, the whole multitude of Israel, both men and women, a cake of bread, a portion of meat, and a cake of raisins to each one. And all the people departed, each to his house. Having gone back to the word, now knowing that they're doing this the right way, the procession resumes. Uh, the priests are carrying the ark now on their shoulders with the poles. Right? Nobody's touching the ark. And when God is worshipped the way he commands... There's nothing for the people to do but to rejoice and celebrate. 
There's the shouting. Uh, there's the, the sound of the horn, verse 15. You can just picture this big and joyful and loud and festive party. Everyone is rejoicing and praising God together with David himself at the forefront. He's at the front of the line. He is dancing before the Lord with all his might. Sacrifices are made. Uh, burnt offerings and peace offerings. Food is distributed to everybody. Right? Everybody's having a grand old time. Now, we do need to be careful uh, with passages like this because this passage is not a prescriptive passage for us to uh, then dance before the Lord with all our might in our worship services. But David's heart, David's heart here, Israel's heart here, right, rejoicing in what God has done and then abundantly expressing that joy through uh, their worship. That is something that we as the church ought to earnestly seek. Brothers and sisters, like as glorious as I'm sure it was for the ark to be brought into Jerusalem, how much more glorious is the gospel which the ark and really everything in the Old Testament points forward to? I mean, what is the ark? The ark is a representation of God's presence with his people. The manifestation of his glory among his people. Well, in the gospel, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. We have seen his glory. Glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. Because of the gospel, we don't need an ark. God's people have been inseparably united to Christ. And so if David and Israel, they're rejoicing for the ark, this picture of the gospel, and that rejoicing so clearly expressed itself in their worship, then does it not stand to reason, church, that we must enthusiastically rejoice in our worship in light of the gospel? Yes, everything must be done decently and in order. But shouldn't God's people be known for singing loudly and joyfully and exuberantly and expressively in making a joyful noise to the Lord? Point number three, the rejoicing. And so as we come to verse 19, you say, well, this is great. All is well. The ark is now in Jerusalem. It's sitting in the tent that David pitched for it. The people have had a wonderful day. Uh, they go home with full bellies. Point number three, the rejoicing. Right? Everybody in Israel is rejoicing. Well, almost everybody. Because there's that one little verse that we skipped over earlier. Look at verse 16. As the ark of the Lord came into the city of David, Michael, the daughter of Saul, looked out of the window and saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord, and she despised him in her heart. See how skillfully uh, the author just kind of slides that verse in, right in the middle of all this rejoicing? Kind of like the parable of the prodigal son, right? Everybody's rejoicing when the prodigal comes home. Well, everyone except for of that older brother, 
Well, everyone here is rejoicing that King David has brought the ark into Jerusalem. Everyone except for the king's own wife. Look at verse 20. David returned to bless his household, but Michael, the daughter of Saul, came out to meet David and said, how the king of Israel honored himself today, uncovering himself today before the eyes of his servants, female servants, as one of the vulgar fellows shamelessly uncovers himself. Maybe some of us can relate to David here. Like when you're just, you're just really worshiping the Lord all your heart. Maybe you just had a a great time of of quiet prayer in which you were just really communing with God. Uh, Maybe you're just listening to some great hymns uh, that were just lifting your soul. Maybe you just heard a really convicting sermon or, or, or the passage that you read in your Bible this morning is just really speaking to you as you continue to meditate on it. Uh, maybe you just see this uh, great blessing in your life that is undeniably from God's hand. Whatever it is, you are on cloud nine. You are worshiping the Lord. And then seemingly out of nowhere, you get that snide remark. You get that sarcastic comment. You get that really discouraging word. And it just hits you like a ton of bricks. And for David, this has to especially sting because it comes from his own wife. Like he is coming home. Look at verse 20. He is coming home to bless his household. He cannot wait to share the blessings that he himself has experienced on this glorious day with his entire family. But before he can do that, his wife comes to meet him at the door and just gives him this earful of resentment. Now, let me just say something very specifically about marriage. Because it's one thing if this kind of deflating word comes from a, a fellow church member or, or a friend or, or a colleague. It's a whole nother level when it comes from your spouse. And so, married people, if this episode here is like a, it's like a picture of your marriage— I'm very sorry, because that that is a hard thing. But to you, friend, I encourage you to persevere. Husbands, I encourage you to love your scornful and contemptuous wives as Christ loved the church. And pray, continue to pray, fervently pray that God would change your heart. And wives, I encourage you to be subject to your own husband so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be one without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. First Peter chapter 3. But married people, if on the other hand, God has blessed you with a husband or a wife who is not like this, but instead is the opposite, right? Instead is a support to your ministry, who instead of detracting from your worship, enhances it, right? If you have a a husband or a wife who joyfully prays with you and sings with you and reads with you and worships with you and makes church a priority with you and loves God with you, well, praise God. Like, Like really, like praise God because that is a wonderful gift from him. 
You are uniquely blessed. You ought to bless the Lord for that. Thirdly, single people looking to get married, please hear me on this. It doesn't matter if your girlfriend is literally a princess, the daughter of King Saul. It doesn't matter if you love her so much that you are willing to slay 200 Philistines for her. If she does not bring you closer to the Lord, then you need to find someone who will. And ladies, same thing. If he does not push you to love Jesus more, it does not matter who he is. You also need to find someone who will. And you need to consider that now, single people. Lest you come home one day from a glorious celebration, having brought the ark into Jerusalem, and be met at the door by this vicious, sarcastic contempt. Let's finish chapter, verse 21. David said to Michael, It was before the Lord who chose me above your father and above all his house to appoint me as prince over Israel, the people of the Lord. And I will celebrate before the Lord. I will make myself yet more contemptible than this. And I will be abased in your eyes. But by the female servants of whom you have spoken, by them I shall be held in honor. And Michael, the daughter of Saul, had no child to the day of her death. Now here's how I have always understood this story. When bringing the ark into Jerusalem, David dances before the Lord, and he does so in indecent attire, like he doesn't have on enough clothing. And so Michael, his wife, she is disgusted with his indecency and harshly rebukes him, gives him these scathing remarks, And David basically says, listen, my conscience is clear because I wasn't doing it for anyone to see. I was just doing it for the Lord. And that's what matters, that God be praised. That's how I've always understood the story. And maybe that's the impression that uh, some of you have on an initial reading of this text. I think there's a little bit more going on here than that. Because if what I described is all that there was, well, then we're, we're left with some really pressing questions, right? Like, If David was indecently dressed, then isn't his wife right to bring it up? And if David was indecently dressed and his wife brings it up, then why does he fire back with with such a harsh response? And if the only thing that she did was rebuke him for his indecency, then why are we told in verse 23 about her childlessness? We talked about this when we looked at Hannah's prayer from uh, 1 Samuel chapter 1, right? Childlessness childlessness is not always a result of sin. Uh, It's kind of like the man born blind, right? Rabbi who sinned that this man uh, is born blind. It's not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. Well, in the same way, right? Childlessness has uh, many possible causes in, in the sovereign plans of God. But here, Second Samuel chapter 6, given that we're told about her childlessness right after David's rebuke, we're left with the conclusion that her childlessness was the result of something that she did here. So then what exactly is going on? Let me start by saying that I don't think 
that this is really about David violating like standards of decency. And the reason I say that is because 1 Chronicles 15.27 explicitly says that David was clothed with a robe of fine linen as also were all the Levites who were carrying the ark. David's dressed the same way that everybody else is in this procession. Like unless you're telling me that everyone was dressed indecently, which I find really hard to believe, especially after what happened with Uzzah and his irreverence. Like, I think they would take every precaution to make sure that they would dress decently. I don't think this is primarily a question of decency. And so if it's not that, then then what is it? Well, look at what Michael says in verse 20. How the king of Israel honored him today, honored himself today. Well, notice how she uses the third person there in talking to David. She refers to him as the king of Israel. Basically, what she's saying here is you are not acting like the king of Israel. But now think about it. If she's comparing King David to this standard of the king of Israel, well, there's only been one other king of Israel. It's her father. Basically, what she's saying here is my father, King Saul, he would never do something like this. And we have another clue that that's what's really going on here. I want you to look carefully in your Bibles. Look at how Michael is described in verse 16. As the ark of the Lord came into the city of David, Michael, the daughter of Saul. And then again in verse 20. And David returned to bless his household, but Michael the daughter of Saul. Then verse 23, and Michael, the daughter of Saul. First of all, we we already know that, right? We've been reading the books of Samuel. We know that Michael is the daughter of Saul. But even if you're going to remind us, like just in case we forgot, you don't have to remind us three times in the span of eight verses. That's like unnecessarily, almost insultingly repetitive. Unless, of course, the author here is making a point. Michael, the daughter of Saul. As in she is her father's daughter. She is channeling Saul here. Because you remember how her father, King Saul, how he cared much more about external appearances than he did honoring the Lord. After he sins in 1 Samuel 15, he's confronted by Samuel. Why did you not obey the voice of the Lord? Samuel tells him that he's going to lose the kingdom because of his sin. You remember what Saul says. He doesn't repent. He doesn't care that he sinned against God. He doesn't care about the glory of God. He just wants to save face before the people. And so he says to Samuel, Honor me now before the elders of my people and before Israel and return with me. Saul never cared about true worship before God. He only cared about external appearances, how he looked before people. And remember, as far as external appearances go, like as far as looking the part goes, King Saul had it down. There was not a man among the people of Israel more handsome than he from his shoulders upward. He was taller than any of the people. Like nobody looked more kingly than King Saul. 
Nobody looked more dignified than King Saul. But at the same time, his heart was very far from God. How the king of Israel honored himself today. You see, Michael's problem was not David wearing this ephod while he's dressed indecently, like you're not wearing enough clothes. Michael's problem was that David was dressed too commonly. He was just dressed like everybody else. Took off his royal robes. Took off his royal attire. His kingly garments. And so he's, he's dressed and he's behaving. Not dignified like a king. Not kingly in his appearance like her father Saul. He's acting like a regular Israelite. Kings don't do that. My father would never do that. So look at David's response. Everything that I did, it's not about my public image or how people see me. Verse 21, it was before the Lord. That's what David cares about. It was before the Lord who chose me above your father and above all his house to appoint me as prince over Israel, the people of the Lord. Like David reminds her that the king to whom she's comparing him is the exact same king whom God already has rejected and chosen David over. David continues, verse 22, I will make myself yet more contemptible than this, and I will be abased in your eyes. Uh, The better translation, if you have an ESV, it's in the footnote, is in my eyes. The NASB has be lowly in my own sight. NIV has, I will be humiliated in my own eyes. Basically what David's saying here, if truly worshiping God, if truly worshiping him means that you think I'm disgracing and humiliating myself, well, then I'm going to disgrace and humiliate myself even more. I'm going to keep worshiping the Lord. Yeah, I am the king, but first and foremost, I am a child of God like all these other people. And so I'm going to act like it. If that means I have to humiliate and humble myself, then I will humiliate and humble myself gladly. To David, being a child of God meant much more than being the king of God's people. So to put this all together, I think that's why what Michael said here was so bad. She's rebuking David and she's telling him to forget what God thinks and just care about what the people think. Forget about what, what, what God sees. You just need to care about what the people see. And you're the king, right? You need to be exalted. You need to be big in the eyes of the people. Not God. Stop making yourself lower that you might exalt God. He is not worthy. You are the king. You are worthy. My father knew that. The king must be exalted. But David... And ultimately, God would have none of that. Point number four, the resentment. Now, sadly, that's, that's the last we hear of Michael. Michael, the daughter of Saul. Uh, just like her father was a king of the world, well, so she was a princess and then a queen of this world. Uh, Just like her father only cared about external appearances and just like her father tried to exalt himself and his own glory above God and his glory, well, Michael is just, at the end of the day, 
as the author reminds us three times, the daughter of Saul. Here's the thing, Michael. If you think that what David does here is absurd, like if you hate the idea of the king of Israel lowering himself like that, if you're so troubled by the idea that the king would put aside his royal robes and put on the common garments of the people, what David does here in humbling himself before the people is nothing compared to what the son of David did, Jesus Christ and humbling himself before his own creation. David powerfully proclaims, I will make myself more contemptible than this. And David indeed does make himself low and abased in his worship of God. But Jesus, the Son of God, the very God of very God, the eternal and uncreated second person of the Trinity— took on human flesh and the lowly a common garment of human flesh well he was despised and rejected by men a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief and as one from whom men hide their faces he was despised and we esteemed him not the king of kings though he was in the form of god did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking on the form of a servant being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. David puts aside his royal robes and puts on the garments of the priests to lead his people in worship Jesus puts aside all of his heavenly glory, puts on the garment of humanity to lead his people to glory. And here's the point. To the kings of this world, to the rulers of this age, to all of the daughters of Saul, that is disgraceful. That is shameful. That is utter foolishness. But to the sons and daughters of God, those who have eyes to see, we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. That he was crucified in weakness, but lives by the power of God to reign as king forevermore. Let's pray. Father, such things are only spiritually discerned, and so we pray that you would grant eyes to see to any in this room that do not know you. Father, we thank you that King Jesus did not count equality with you a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself and took on the garment of human flesh that he might die for our sins and save his people. Father, we pray that we, as your people, would forever cherish and love the gospel. For it is by the gospel alone that we have been reconciled to a holy God. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.